You can donate to the Historian's Podcast by clicking the GoFundMe link on bobcudmore.com. This is Jim Kaplan. I'm a uh, lawyer, writer, and previously walking tour historian of New York, and I'm going to talk today about Marinus Willett, a great New York City historical figure. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Our New York City correspondent, Jim Kaplan, joins us. Your story about Marinus Willett uh, begins with an account of an annual celebration in New York of two American victories during the uh, Revolutionary War. Please tell us about that. Yes, every year in October for the last seven years, the Lower Manhattan Historical Association has held its an annual uh, celebration in honor of the American victories at Saratoga in Yorktown. Saratoga was uh, October 19th, and Yorktown was October 17th. I think I got that. Uh, it's in Trinity Churchyard because three of the important Revolutionary War figures associated with those battles are buried there. That's uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton, who everybody has heard and has a big grave there, Horatio Gates, whose grave was relatively recently marked about 10 years ago by the DAR under uh, uh, now National Chairman uh, uh, Denise Van Buren, and Marinus Willett. Willett's uh, grave has always been there uh, but uh, and is marked, but not very well. Uh, so the, the only grave that most people would know about was uh, Alexander Hamilton and perhaps now Gates. Um, I would say of the Revolutionary War heroes on whose grave a wreath is laying at that ceremony, Marinus Willett is probably the least well-known of the three. However, in my view, Willett is arguably of equal, if not more, importance to the history of the city of New York, certainly than General Gates, who's much more important than most people realize, or perhaps even Alexander Hamilton, who everybody realizes, uh, and that's why I'm going to talk about him today. General Gates was the ultimate general at the Battle of Saratoga, though, wasn't he? Yes, Gates was Gates was the battle, uh, the uh, general who was in charge at Saratoga. I think was the critical to the victory. Although this recent, uh, uh, always been recent claims that Benedict Arnold was the key person at the battle. I don't buy that at all. You're going to have another podcast where that's argued. I assume pretty mm -hmm. relatively. Recently, yes, but, we uh, will. But let's get let's focus though on Marinus Willett, who was from New York City, but he's well thought of and well remembered by historians here in upstate New York because he played a role in the American Revolution, really throughout the Mohawk Valley. Uh, what did he do? Yeah, well, Willett is probably better known today for his relatively brief time at the Battle of Fort Stanwix where the Marinus Willett Visitor Center greets you to the National Park Service facility, and his later defense of the Mohawk Valley during the Revolution. That, in certain respects, in my view, obscures the fact that he was a very important New York City politician and diplomat who played a critical role in the history of the nation and the city for almost 50 years after the Revolution. Probably his most historically important achievement, in my view, was his successful effort in 1790 to negotiate the Treaty of New York with 27 Muscogee Creeks. This treaty was 
one of the few treaties negotiated in New York when it was the capital in a brief period, but was really one of the early great diplomatic triumphs for the nation, nascent American government. And in certain respects, I believe it has major implications for the city to this day. Mm. So I think really his greatest effort was the negotiation with, uh, on behalf of the Tammany Society with the, the Creek Nation, which settled the uh, controversies uh, in the southeast, uh, or Georgia and Alabama. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Can you tell us about Marinus Willett's early life and his role during the Revolution? Yeah, Willett was born in what today is the borough of Queens in 1740 to a somewhat prominent old-line family of landowners, which is sometimes described as having seen better days. He became a cabinet maker by trade, and as a young man growing up in New York City, he became a member of the Sons of Liberty, obviously opposed to the British uh, occupation, you might say. After hostilities broke out in Boston in 1785, an incident occurred on June 6, 1780, I'm sorry, 1775. An incident occurred on June 6, 1775, when a convoy of British soldiers led heavy arms to Boston to join the Battle of Bunker Hill. Uh, Willett came out of a local bar and jumped unarmed in front of the armed line of British soldiers, and he protested that only light arms, not heavy arms, were authorized by the city's ruling council, which was split between patriots and Tories. The mayor, uh, David Matthews, was a strong supporter of the, the British. So other members of the Sons of Liberty soon gathered on Broad Street to stop the convoy and the British authorities presumably fearing another Boston massacre, backed down and returned the heavy arms to the armory. As a result of what this would later be called the, quote, Broad Street incident, Willett became a local patriot hero, and in a way his career as a major figure began on that day, and he would serve in the Continental Army and later in the New York and federal governments for the next 50 years. And Marinus Willett played a role in the defense of Fort Stanwix in Rome, New York, in 1777. What happened there? As active hostilities broke out, having served with the militia in the French and Indian War, actually at the, when Fort Stanwix was being uh, uh, constructed, Willett uh, became an important officer in New York's militia. He was actually instrumental in the defense of Peekskill against that and preventing it from being burned. There's no monument to him in Peekskill, but he was quite important. He was later assigned to Fort Stanwix near Rome, New York in 1777 as British troops under General John Burgoyne were driving down from Canada to split the colonies in two. Uh, Burgoyne's plan was to send troops under uh, General Barry St. Leger to take Fort Stanwix and to attack the Revolutionary War uh, forces uh, under General Gates later from the West. Uh, now, St. Leger's superior force of British regulars and Native American allies besieged Fort Fanworks, and there were some 700 troops under the command of Peter Scansifort. If they had taken the fort, Gates would have been attacked from the West and the, probably his victory at Saratoga wouldn't have taken place. What happened uh, with the siege was that uh, the British commanders uh, surrounded the fort, having many more troops than the 700 there, 
and told the men that unless that if they surrendered, they would uh, not, they wouldn't be harmed. But if they did not, they couldn't guarantee that the British, uh, that the Native Americans under the British command, wouldn't kill and scalp all the uh, patriot women and children as well as the the rest of the community. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Willett, who was the second in command to Peter Gansford, but the older man, uh, spoke on behalf of the Americans. And basically what he said was, are you telling us that unless we surrender this fort, you will kill all our women and children, uh, all our Christian women and children? You should never come back here except as prisoners. And that was kind of a brave thing to say under the circumstances. That's a very famous speech for which Willett is credited. Well, ultimately what happened was Willett and Gansefort Sorton were able to obtain reinforcements from uh, Philip Schuyler near Albany, and their arrival under General Ebony as learned forced St. Leger to abandon his attack from the West, helping to pave the way for the American victory at the battles of Saratoga. And to this day, anyone who goes to Fort Stanwix, which I encourage all of you to do, it's known as the fort that never surrendered. So Willett was a key factor in that. And, mm. uh, uh, and after that, obviously, his heroism after the war would greatly enhance his political position mm-hmm. in New York City. But we still had more war to get through. What did he, Willett do after uh, Fort Stanwix? He took, he took part in the Battle of ran with, and uh, he was uh, held uh, military positions in upstate New York, basically with General Sullivan in his ignominious uh, campaign, or today his campaign against the Native Americans in 1779. Uh, but Willett would later express considerable doubts about the wisdom of the United States policy of subduing Native peoples in these bitter military actions, and he would later be an opponent of that. I think our country, our history might have been quite different if uh, George Washington and others had followed his his view. He was later uh, assigned to Fort Plain uh, and and at uh, Fort Ontario, but he withdrew when his movements were discovered, and then he was uh, involved at the end of the war in building access to Oneida Lake. Uh, I suppose, in certain respects, his uh, military clear was less uh, uh, illustrious than, than, than his, his defense of Fort Stanwix. He was uh, responsible for the trial of Walter Butler, who was a very famous uh, loyalist who had uh, led massacres against the uh, Americans. Um, his greatest political days were yet to come. And he uh, played an important role back in New York City after the revolution ended uh, in 1783. Yes, we will have returned to New York something of a, as a Revolutionary War hero. Uh, he was one that became one of the leaders of the newly established uh, post-Revolutionary War government in New York City. In 1784, he was appointed sheriff of the city of New York, in which capacity he was in charge of uh, re- restoring order and police functions, and also distributing forfeited loyalist lands. Most of the land held in New York City uh, before the Revolutionary War was in the hands of loyalists who had left, and under New York State law, that was to be forfeited to the state. So he uh, was in charge of uh, 
implementing the state's policy of redistributing land belonging to loyalists. And that soon met considerable opposition from former Tories, represented by certain uh, important lawyers, such as Alexander Hamilton and John Jay. Uh, Hamilton and Jay uh, uh, contended that the Treaty of Paris, which had ended the war, guaranteed that the rights of loyalists to their pre-war property would be respected. That was part of the deal by which the American uh, nation became independent, that they would not uh, disturb the property rights of people who had uh, uh, held property, particularly in New York City, which was... uh, But that ran directly contrary to the policy of the state of New York that loyalist property was to be forfeited. So this was a very uh, difficult situation there. Uh, Hamilton and uh, Jay and their supporters and the Tory supporters said, land is ours, not not you people who fought in the revolution who get it from the New York State. Uh, ultimately, the U.S. Constitution, which was heavily promoted, obviously, by Hamilton and Jay, would uphold the Tories' claims in its clause that stated, no state shall impair the obligation of contract. Uh, it was for this reason that Willett was a staunch anti-federalist and an ally of George Clinton, who unsuccessfully closed the ratification of the U.S. Constitution. I mean, today, uh, you know, the anti-federalists are considered to be... Uh, uh, Anachronism, and how could they possibly oppose the U.S. Constitution? But you have to look at it at the time when the Federalists, led by Alexander Hamilton, his father-in-law Philip Schuyler, and John Jay, became ascendant in New York City politics. Willis lost some of his political power. He then joined with a, a civic organization of sorts, you might call a civic later political organization, which called the Tammany Society. And the Tammany Society would become the center of anti-federalist opposition to this increasingly aristocratic tendencies in New York City's politics to essentially restore the loyalists to their pre-war position. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, the Tammany Society would be quite important for the next 150 years. Yes, tell us more about the Tammany Society. The Tammany Society was primarily a group of disaffected Revolutionary War veterans who sometimes dressed in Native American outfits and held July 4th celebrations. In fact, I consider our Lower Manhattan Historical Association's July 4th celebration as a a descendant of the Tammany Society July 4th celebrations. They were opposed, although we're not political, I want to emphasize that, they were opposed to the increasingly aristocratic Federalists who they viewed as betraying the ideals of the Revolution. The Tammany Society was said to be named after Chief Tammany of the Delawares, who supposedly had signed a peace treaty in 1683 with William Penn that established the city of Philadelphia. Chief Tammany was said to have believed in democratic ideals and peaceful and cooperative relations between Native peoples and Europeans. And I'm going Mm. to uh, elaborate on that later. And Marinus Willett, ultimately was asked to solve a difficult dispute with the Native American nation. In 1790, New York City was briefly the capital of the United States until it was moved to Philadelphia. At the time, 
the federal government, which was, by the way, then headquartered at but today is Florence's Tavern, which I strongly encourage people to visit, uh, had a number of very significant problems, not the least of which was its relationship with the Muskegee Creek, who had controlled most of what is today South Tennessee, Alabama, western Georgia, and parts of northern Florida. Although all territory east of the Mississippi had been ceded over to the United States in the Treaty of Paris, the very powerful Muskegee had allied with the British. After conflicts with white settlers on their territory, Georgia officials insisted that the federal government send troops to protect white settlers and uh, remove the Muskegee Creeks. I mean, any white man in their territory was subject to being arrested or maybe even scalped. George Washington and his Secretary of War, Henry Knox, believed that the federal government, unfortunately, did not have the capability of doing this. And from their point of view, a better solution would be to reach an accommodation with the Creeks. Uh, Therefore, after a delegation in 1789 led by General Benjamin Lincoln failed to achieve this goal, Washington and Knox, who were obviously part of the Federalist government, reached across the aisle to the Republican Democrats to Marinus Willett. Even though Willett had been a staunch anti-Federalist, he had a reputation for having dealt with Native peoples at the end of the Revolutionary War, particularly after Sullivan's campaign. And Washington reportedly thought highly of his service during the war. Willett, who was about 50 at the time, accepted the assignment and gathered an experienced guide to undertake the mission to the creek, which was highly dangerous because even going into, or a white man going into creek territory could subject him to considerable danger and perhaps scalping. He met, however, with Alexander McGivalry, the son of a Muskegee mother and a Scottish leader who was an influential and very controversial Muskogee Creek leader. He was apparently the leader of the Creek Nation at the time, Mm -hmm. and uh, also something of a diplomat and businessman. Mm -hmm. Willett informed McGillivray that he had come as the special representative of George Washington, and that they should understand that the American government wanted peace and not war. Uh, he reportedly said that contrary to what they may have heard, the Americans were peaceful people, and that unlike the British, who had in effect sold the Muskegee out in the Treaty of Paris, they could trust them to live in peace for the mutual benefit of both groups. This must have been one of the most interesting meetings in American history. Hare of Willett, representing George Washington, shows up at the head of the Creek Nation and says, I represent George Washington, we want peace. Anyways, Willett invited McGillivray to visit the American capital in then New York City to see how people lived and perhaps meet with Washington. Uh, He proved persuasive because shortly thereafter, a delegation of 27 Muskegee Creek chiefs traveled to New York. They reportedly received a warm reception in cities such as Baltimore and Philadelphia. But in New York City, the Tammany Society members were allegedly out in force to greet them in their best native attire. And there were a number of dinners and receptions in which the society members assured them of their great interest and respects for their customs and traditions, and that, that uh, white men and uh, that the people of New York w- w- would welcome uh, friendly relations with the Native Americans. 
uh, as skepticism and hostility began to fade, he was negotiated by Willis, had to have society compatriots, that secured rights to uh, whites and the, to the ancestral lands of the upper, middle, lower, and Creek Seminole, comprising the Creek nations, but also allowed, I'm sorry, that assured the Creeks that they would have all rights to their upper, middle, lower Creek uh, uh, lands, but it also allowed white settlers to enter and live in their territory in peace. Mm. Uh, the Muskegee men also ceded a large area of their hunting grounds to the Okanai River and agreed to surrender runaway slaves to federal authorities. That obviously was... Uh, McGivalry apparently had a plantation with as many as 60 slaves. And the United States granted the Creeks to deal with non-Indian trespassers, but were required to turn over non-Indians who committed crimes on their lands to the white authorities. It's also said that secretly McGivalry was awarded uh, funds, an annual salary, and to be a, uh, a general in the U.S. Army. Uh, uh, so, you know, that, there was some element, you might say, of uh, mm-hmm. uh, corruption there. Uh, uh, the treaty known as the Treaty of New York was a significant triumph for the United States. Washington and Knox were delighted, as was, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, this greatly enhanced uh, uh, Willett's reputation as the diplomat, if you will, who had, who had uh, uh, negotiated. Now, legend has it, and I want to emphasize that I wasn't there, nor have I seen a transcript of this, right. is that at a final meeting of the Muskegee leaders and Tammany Society, the Gilvery raised his glass, the Creek leader, and said, I see you gentlemen call yourselves the Tammany Society. I assume you know it was Chief Tammany of the Delawares who in 1683 signed the peace treaty with William Penn that formed the basis for the Pennsylvania colony and the city of Philadelphia. Chief Tammany firmly believed that peace between Native Americans and white men, and that if Native Americans and white men could work together in peace and respect, their cities could be among the most important and wealthy in the world. It was for this reason that the city of Philadelphia became the most important city in the colonies, which was true, more so than other colonies in which there were wars between the whites and the, and the, and the Native Americans like Massachusetts or Virginia. Although perhaps these principles have not always been followed, uh, it was Chief Tammany's dream that one day there would be a city in which the government of people would more closely adhere to this vision, and that such a city would one day be the largest and the wealthiest and most important and one of the most powerful in the world. Mm. So supposedly they raised their glasses and they toasted to Chief Tammany's dream. Now, of course, the Treaty of New York... Uh, with respect to the lands of the Muskegee Creek, was shortly thereafter broken by the aid of Georgia and the United States, and uh, they were forced from their land into Oklahoma along the Trail of Tears by Andrew Jackson and the Indian Removal Act. Hmm. Uh, Did the Tammany Society then become more powerful, and what happened to Marinus Willett? In the election of 1800s, led by celebrity candidates, such as General Horatio Gates and Governor George Clinton with his political strategist Aaron Burr, defeated the Federalists, led by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and Philip Schuyler, and supported the election of Thomas Jefferson, 
forming what today is the modern Democratic Party, which rules the city in many ways to this day. Uh, Marinus Willett uh, was offered by George Washington to have a commission to lead the American army against the native peoples in Ohio. But he refused, supposedly, preferring to stay in New York City as sheriff. It's said that he posed the use of force to drive out the Americans from their land in the Ohio Valley because he thought it was bad policy. History of this country might have been quite different if Washington had followed uh, uh, Willett's uh, advice and view. Willett was... Uh, uh, later became and it was an important political leader in New York as with the Tammany Society, which ruled for most of the 19th century or most of the. Uh, uh, he was the mayor of New York in 1807. Uh, uh, there was some infighting between him and other New York City politicians like uh, Morgan Lewis. He apparently, uh, at the age of 67, wasn't the most, you might say, astute uh, pol politician although he was really a revered figure. Actually, in 1807 was the year that Robert Fulton's steamboat went up the, uh, uh, to Albany and back. Um, so uh, uh, he then kind of, to some extent, you might say, lost his position. Uh, at the age of, however, during the War of 1812, when the British were about to attack New York City, he... Uh, I again became an important figure when, at the age of 74, he led us. He made a stirring speech from the steps of the newly reconstructed city hall, in which he would rally the New York militias against the prospective British invasion. Uh, it was believed that New York City was undefended, but after his speech, close to 20,000 people joined overnight the militia and it stood, and obviously the British never attacked. Uh, so uh, uh, he was an important figure in certain respects. He was actually a member of the Electoral College even in the, into the 1820s. He later was backed uh, uh, John, uh, John Quincy Adams, for reasons it's not entirely clear to me. Uh, uh, but he died in 1831 at the age of 91, Mm. Uh, and his funeral at Trinity Church included an estimated 10,000 mourners and was one of the largest in the city's history. It was one of a really uh, uh, great New York City, uh, like you might say, Ed Koch or David Dinkins' uh, funeral. You know, that, that he was considered one of the great political leaders uh, of New York and one of probably the most important in many ways up to that time. Uh, uh, I, I, oh, so when I, I actually give this, the talk on Willett at, at the laying of his grave for the, uh, uh, Lower Manhattan Historical Association. And what I usually say is, uh, when he died, it was said that he would never be forgotten. He was so important. But how many of you have ever heard of Marinus Willett before <laughs> well. today? Our New York City correspondent Jim Kaplan has joined us to talk about the life of uh, Marinus Willett. Uh, you've been, um, th this is a story uh, first appeared in New York uh, Almanac uh, in print, and uh, you've been doing a series in New York Almanac on the history of Wall Street. Yeah, I've done, I'm going to do a 12 part series, uh, I don't think uh, six of which have already appeared. 
The Tammany society, although often stained with corruption, has in many ways a bad reputation today, uh, was quite important because of its view that people of different races could work together. And I think uh, with following up on uh, uh, Mr. McGillery's uh, speech, uh, uh, it was as a result of that policy uh, and a very important bedrock position of Tammany that different different ethnic groups could work together, that the city of New York is the great international city that it is today. So I think in many respects, Willard, I would view as, for that reason, perhaps equally important to Alexander Hamilton as a New York City mm. uh, historical figure. Uh, yes, I, I, I did give, as, as, you, as we did in a previous podcast, uh, a, a series on the Tammany's last stand, which by far my most ambitious project, I would say, is going to be this uh, 12-part series on the history of Wall Street. Our New York City correspondent, Jim Kaplan. Good luck with that. Uh, You've been listening uh, to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.